Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be a part of Oak Park. And uh, we celebrate birthdays once a year, right? Because we're supposed to celebrate that person all year long. But the birthday is a reminder of how much we appreciate them, right? And so I am reminded of the immense value of being a part of a local body that would take a month to remember that we are always on mission. Right? But if we don't take time to set aside the value that's a premium to us as to why we do what we do, we can lose even it. And so here we are at the end of a month focused on global mission and local mission and all of that means for us to be a part of that. And so I am incredibly grateful just to be here and celebrate that with you and also hopefully bring to mind some of what I think the Lord wants us to know to encourage us to move beyond this month and continue on the mission he's given us. And so we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As most preachers do, I'll bleed outside of that text a little bit, but principally 4, 1 through 6. And so I'll read the text for us as we begin this morning. First, or 2 Corinthians 4, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your grace and mercy you did shine light, that in your grace and mercy you did give us sight, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to be stirred, to long for you through the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that you would stir us afresh this morning, that God, you would give us eyes to see what you see, And God, give us hearts to celebrate the immenseness of your glory, your greatness, and what that means for the nations and for the neighbors next door. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, I I don't know if jarring is the right term, but I don't have other language for what it means to stand in the middle of a burned out stone building and look at stacks of scaffolding with various sized skulls, with fractures here, scatter lines there, knowing that most of those skulls were small, I could have held them in the palm of my hand. Niarabue, Rwanda, it was a systematic carrying out of genocidal warfare that brought the Hutu foot soldiers to that village, to that place, to that building that was a schoolhouse throwing incendiary devices inside to kill who they could to drive the rest outside so they could be mowed down with strong arm fire to be driven back inside to repeat the process. 
until all were dead. Genocide carried out to eradicate that ethnic group from the face of the planet because the other ethnic groups said we are superior. Now it's one thing to stand in shock and realize there's no marble edifice in their culture. It literally is you can reach out and touch the skulls with your hands. There are no names emblazoned there. For you to possibly remember what was lost in that place, it's right in front of you. You can see it. You can touch it. To see somewhere between 750,000 and a million of their countrymen butchered over a three-month process, you think would never find this statement made by one of the key evangelical leaders a pastor in the country, but I sat there and heard him with my own ears say to missionaries that look like you and me across the table, I know you mean well. I know you want to be here. I know you can speak our language. I know that you want things to be different. But you will never understand us because I can even justify the genocide. I can justify the killing of all those people because that's just how we think. And I'll never forget this young missionary who had only been there for about six years looking back with steely eyes and saying, that's why we're here. Because God is worth it. And that's why we're here Wherever here might be, wherever he might be pleased to place us, that's why we're here. Because God is worth it. Even though some around you will never say what you're doing is the right thing. They won't applaud you or commend you. Matter of fact, they'll unload every barrel against you. And some of them will sit in the chairs beside you in this room. Some of them, you call them brother or sister, not because they're a part of being in Christ together with you. They are your blood. And they are confounded as to why you would stake your life on the gospel. To send, to go, or to do both, depending on the season of life. But that's not new. To have what you're doing questioned in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, since his first writing, new people have come in, in and around the church in Corinth. And they are asking all kinds of questions about Paul, his motives, his ministry. And they mean to log accusations against him and to catalog them and stack them up to ultimately disprove that he has any role ministry at all. And hopefully to lead others to look at him with a suspect eye. And so he writes this letter, I think, in part, so that we can hear in our day, don't lose heart. It is one thing to sit for four weeks of sermons. It's one thing to go for 10 to 14 days on short-term mission. It's even something to be applauded. And champion to go with the rest of your life to an open or restricted access area. But it's another thing to be honest and put everything on the table and say, we want to give up a lot. We don't want to do this. This is hard. 
it may demand everything. And when people stand in this place and say, you may have to give your life, whether in an instant, or you certainly will give it over the balance of your life, they're not blowing smoke. That's really the call of discipleship. That's hard, day in and day out. It's one thing to have one conversation around the gospel with someone who is belligerent. It's another thing to know Jesus, to show you are enough. I'm going to have to spend my life doing that. And Paul staked his life on Jesus being enough to satisfy his soul, to satisfy the souls of those to whom he preached. And so because he did that, accusations came. And here, even in this text, he says there's reasons why I wouldn't lose heart. But the reasons really are a revisitation of what matters at the core. He doesn't say I don't lose heart because at the end of the day, I know there's some good in these people. I don't lose heart at the end of the day because I know it's meaningful work, just in and of itself, because it's humanitarian. I don't lose heart because I know there are worse things I could do with my life that wouldn't matter quite as much. He doesn't lose heart for, I think, some of the same reasons we shouldn't lose heart. And here's the way I would say it to us this morning. We're going to hopefully not lose heart as the Lord be pleased in His grace because we remember that our goal for missions is that people may see God's glory in Christ. That is the goal of discipleship. That is the goal of mission. That is the goal of our lives being spent following Him. The goal for missions is that people may see God's glory in Christ. And then secondly, our ground or our basis for missions is that we already see God's glory in Christ. So we see it, we hear the truth. God granted us grace to respond in faith. And because we are those people, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus' finished work, we long for other people to be our brothers and our sisters. But the way that that ultimately plays itself out, the goal to which God is working that, is that we might see Him as glorious. That's what He saved us to do. We already enjoy it. We long for others to enjoy who He is too. And so here's how Paul starts out. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And that becomes the picture frame of what he's going to say. This ministry that I have, chapters 2 through 7, he's going to defend to these people that want to hurl these accusations at him. And he says, I understand this ministry of the gospel, this going and seeing it spread out and extended and more churches established all over the inhabited world. I, I understand that this is a gift. Like I, I didn't take this up because it was a strong career set. Right, this, this is a gift from the Lord that's cost me everything. Because Jesus, he will say later in the letter, made himself poor that we might become rich in him. So whatever I have divested myself of, Jesus has given everything that I might see him as glorious. But I have this as a gift. How did it come to me? By God's mercy. God was merciful to me to rescue me and say, look at the world through my eyes. These people are not with me. They are opposed to me. Paul, do you not weep for them? Do you not long for them to not be as you once were, but to be as you are now? Do you not? 
Here's this commission, this call, and it'll push you out toward them. So Paul understands, by God's mercy, I have received this ministry of the gospel. But, but it's also a means of God's mercy through me to them, that the call to believe in Jesus might come. It's all of God's mercy, his grace toward Paul. He frames the whole statement he's going to make in that light. It's glorious that God would give by his mercy this ministry. But the difficulty is, in verse 2, he starts to really, you can see, respond to these accusations. I know it's a gift from the Lord. I know it's merciful. I know I should be overjoyed, and I am. But there's all these accusations coming at me. And here's what we read into verse 2. We understand to be the accusations behind his response. Basically, they said, verse 1, even if you want to read back, man, you're just running out of steam. Like you're, you're losing heart. I mean, look at everywhere you position yourself. Look at all the time you spend, the energy, the resources. You can't keep this up, old man. Like at the end of the day, you're going to run out of gas. And it looks like it's already happening a little bit. Well, not only that, but we're pretty sure, verse 2, that there's something shady going on. I mean, I understand that people give money to you, right? Because you make these appeals in front of congregations. But do you really use it for what you say you use it for? I mean, there's lots of things I could give money to. Paul, I'm not sure that giving to what you brand as the good news is the right thing to do because I'm not really sure that you're being faithful with the resources. And if that's not bad enough, you say that you have this message that will bring life. But it actually seems like you're the only one saying you have the authority to really speak on Jesus' part. I mean, do you really have that authority to speak? I mean, at the end of the day, we all hate authority anyway, Paul, so why would we listen to you? And if that all weren't bad enough, it just doesn't look like people are signing up to be on your team, Paul. I mean, I don't see people in droves throughout Corinth just flocking to you. You're such an eloquent speaker. Everybody wants to come because the wisdom that you bring, as he's already addressed in his first letter, seems like foolishness. And maybe it's because your message is just obscure. Maybe you're not being faithful to what should be right and true. Especially because you, you don't really see Moses the way we see him in many instances, which we'll talk about in a moment. But you try that on for size. When you've given your life, divested yourself of a meaningful place to call home any longer, forfeited all that was upward mobility, and you've done it all for the sake of this Jesus that you say is life and hope. That by his blood shed, others might know that same life and hope. And wouldn't it be the case that you might want to lose heart? But Paul emphatically says, verse 2, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. How do you go about mission? You have some backbone and character and integrity. Because God, by His grace, enables people who stand in truth to withstand a torrent of persecution, affliction, second-guessing, and it doesn't have to come from a third-world context or domain distant from you. It'll come inside your own house a lot of the time. 
Paul stands in the midst of these accusations and says, I want to set the record straight. That's not my motive. And I'm not being disgraceful. And I'm not commending myself on its own. It's in the sight of God. We flippantly say, as God is my witness, when he says in the sight of God, he recognizes that the Lord is sovereign over every molecule of existence. And because that's true, when he invokes that, it means I'm telling the truth that the Lord would affirm this. That Jesus himself has called me to this ministry. Jesus himself has directed his disciples to this ministry of mission. And because that's true, we, we don't lose heart. We know the merciful work of the Lord. We hope in him. We trust in him. But that last accusation starts to bleed into verse 3. Paul, I don't, I don't think that your message is strong enough. I, I don't think that it actually bears the weight that you think it can bear because people just don't believe And at the end of the day, the proof is in the stinking pudding, Paul. Right? If people aren't flocking to you, you can't be in God's will. As if Jesus actually said the way is wide open and broad and it has no boundaries. Rather than the way is narrow and very few will enter in. But nevertheless, that's the accusation. Your ministry is not booming in the way that ministry is blessed by God. Boom. Your message is not resonating at a high level among certain segments of the population, Paul. And so because that's true, it must not actually be the good news you say it is. So Paul's response to that in verse 3 really begins to underscore our first point. That our goal for missions is that people may see God's glory in Christ He says, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He said, it's not a matter of eloquence at this point. It's actually not a matter of articulation. I can be, and by all accounts, he was a masterful speaker, orator, who was very diligent and intent on people understanding what he said. He said, the issue isn't what I'm saying, it's what they can see. That's the issue here. And and let me say to you, brothers and sisters, the, the issue is not, in a missions emphasis, trying to get you to see what is around the world that you can't see. That's not the principal issue. The principal issue is getting you to see what others around the world can't see. They can't see it. All these things that we have sung about, All these things that you and I take for granted, they don't see it because they can't, because they are veiled. His reference really is back to chapter 3. He said in 3, 12 through 18, really, which is the end of what he's saying there about Moses and the Old Covenant, the idea that you remember in Exodus 34, when Moses would go up onto Sinai and he would receive revelation from the Lord, his face would glow Because he's seen the glory of the Lord. He'd have a glory tan, right? That's a crass way of putting it. But the whole point is it would reflect the glory. And so he he would come down and he would have to veil his face. Why? Well, it just hurts people's eyes. That's not the point. The point far more emphatically is this. That people can't look on glory in an unhindered way in the old covenant. They couldn't look at it. They would have to look at it for a time and he would have to veil his face. 
he transitions from that to make the statement that there are people now under the new covenant that Jesus has brought life where a new heart has been given that God might write his law there that we might know his grace and mercy in Christ. And people want to take a veil and put it over their eyes. He says, the people that are actually logging these accusations against me, that's what they're doing. I am saying to you that Jesus is the one that we hoped for. That he is the goal of everything that built throughout the Old Testament into the New. And I am saying to you, hope in him with everything that you are. And they are manufacturing a veil to say, it's not complete in him. He's not enough. This can't be certain. And the irony in the midst of that is that when he gets to verse 18, he actually says this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Why are they not different? Why can't they see this? Why do they veil their eyes? Because the only way that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be different is if they behold the glory of the Lord because that's the means by which he makes them look more like Jesus. If you want to know why you don't change or you don't feel like you're changing as a believing person, do you see what you've been given eyes to see? Do you spend time in his word, in prayer with brothers and sisters who drive you back to the greatness and gravity of who Jesus is? Because beholding him in that way, hearing the truth, understanding it, the more we behold him, the more God works through that means to make us like him. The reason the goal of our missions efforts is that people might see God's glory in Christ is because that is the means by which they will actually be transformed and that's God's goal ultimately. It's not simply that they escape hell. It's that they be with him. It's not just, can we keep them from damnation? It's can we help them to hear? Can we be the means by which they hear the gospel? And God grants them faith to believe so they can see his glory. Not just now, but forever. With unending joy, can they see that? Paul says they can't see that. They are veiled because we will find a way to make our way to some version of God when the way isn't the one that Jesus himself said he was. Trust in me, believe in me, hope in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God, the Father, except through me. But the veil is there. And so because it's there, they cannot know him. It's interesting, I, I talked about haunting words here. I, I'm going to tell you, the verse that I hit in the New Testament, more than any other, that snags me, and I, I say to myself, man, I, we have to be very careful how we hear the truth, right? Even as believing people, there's a cautionary note here. John 8, 45, this heated exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, and emphatically, he's going to say, before Abraham was born, I am, right? He's going to claim divinity, 
But in the midst of that, he unfurls this litany of problems with them. And their core root issue is, you, you want to discuss who my father is? And you want to debate what I say about my father? Your father's the devil. And do you know why your father's the devil? Because you love lies. And he is the originator of lies. He said, you want to know how deeply you are entrenched and jailed by your desire for untruth? He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which can be taken this way. The reason you don't believe what I'm saying about myself is because I'm telling you the truth right now. So I'm causing you not to believe by what I say. The words coming from my mouth are actually repelling you. They're pushing you not to believe. You want to talk about haunting and sobering words. They have for so long loved untruth. They have for so long bathed in it. That when the truth of the gospel is spoken in some instances, it is actually repulsive. It pushes away from the truth. Because they don't want to hear it. And they haven't wanted to hear it for a long, long time. In their case, the entirety of their lives. You take that alongside what Paul said in verse 3, and you understand why this goal of ours is so imperative. That we hold up the goal of people seeing God's glory through the gospel in Christ. We have to hold that up. Here's why. Because I love service dogs. I really do. I love them. All right? It relates. Trust me. Just follow me on this journey. All right? I love service dogs. I really, because I love dogs, right? I'm not a cat guy. Like, I won't go any further than that because I don't want to distance anyone from the conversation, all right? But I'm not a cat guy, dog guy, all right? So I love dogs, especially service dogs. It amazes me to watch video of SEAL Team 6 jump out the back end of a C-130 and the dog is strapped to him, right? He's got the goggles. He's got the Kevlar vest, too. He's strapped. He's ready, right? He's going to charge in there with the best of them. He's a SEAL just like they are. I love seeing service dogs out in the community, Someone's blind, right? And they have a service dog. That dog's capacity is incredible. That dog can keep them away from dangerous noises. They know certain scents. There are service dogs that are used for people who are not impaired in that way. They may just have an allergy. And the dogs can actually be trained to sense peanut butter in a room on a surface where it hasn't been there for two months. And the dog can get in the way of the child if the child's too small to know the difference so the child doesn't stick his hand on the counter. It's amazing what dogs can do. We are not guide dogs. We're not service dogs. But a lot of our mission looks like we are because you know what the stated mission of organizations who supply service dogs is, and it's such a glorious thing that they do it. It's to enhance life and make the best life for people who are otherwise impaired. And we should labor for that. I mean, I would love it if providentially the Lord spurred one of you on to start a service like that. I think that's incredible. But that's not what missions is at the root of it. If all we're trying to do is make life better now and otherwise support people who are emotionally scarred and wounded, and we should support them. If we're trying to actually undo impoverished states around the world because we don't want to see children languish and die in poverty, we should do that. If we want to come against trafficking because there's an unconscionable series of things that happen, and especially the men in the room ought to say, amen. How do we not stand 
on behalf of women and children who are vulnerable. We ought to. But if all we do is those things, that is not gospel mission in and of itself. It's not. Because there are plenty of people doing those things, and they're probably doing it better than you and I can in a lot of instances. Doing those things for our neighbor is neighbor love because we are called to do it absolutely. Amen. But doing those things and pleading with the Lord that the veil might be removed from their eyes. Pleading that He might invade their soul with the gospel. That they might know joy in Him. That's gospel mission. That's the core of it. That's what drives us forward in any of those things that we do. It's to speak, declare, live in light of the gospel. But he actually defines what's happened. I mean, I kind of do want to know. I'm intrigued now, Paul. Like, they're veiled, right? They, they can't see it. Well, what? Why? I mean, are we smarter than they are? I mean, it, I'm guessing that's it, right? We're smarter. We're more sophisticated. That's clearly the issue. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan has blinded what? Their eyes? No. Their mind. He has blinded their mind so they cannot see this glorious gospel that he's given. I know we're frustrated with somebody somewhere, every one of us. There's somebody you have in mind. And you're just sick and tired of sharing the gospel with them, right? Or you're tired of seeing beheadings in an arena or situation that you fund the missionaries there even though no one can say anything about it openly, right? And because you do that consistently, because they're your friend from college or you happen to have a connection with them, you wonder, why, why does this continue to happen? Why can't these people wise up, right? And in some settings, very sophisticated, well-meaning people. But sophistication, an intellectual pursuit in and of itself, will not open your eyes to see the glory of the Lord. Because Satan himself has blinded unbelieving people that even if they wanted to open their eyes, there's no sight to be had. They can't see. They cannot behold what their heart longs to behold. So they will see, they will understand, they will know lesser things than the grandeur of the beauty of the glory of God and they will call it good enough. They will call it better than something else. They, they will call it meaning. They will call it happiness. They will do all those things. But they won't behold his glory and his greatness. Because he so blinded their minds. But it's interesting that the end of his statement is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And all of a sudden for me... I. I think in terms of creation now. God, God has fashioned us in his image. And Adam and Eve in their rebellion said, bearing image, being made in likeness, that's not sufficient for us. We'll rebel from that. And they did. And I think the anticipation, rightly, and the natural reading of the text is, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll surely die. I think they thought, we're going to die right now. Right now we're going to die. Because when God speaks and God says something and he acts, it's definitive now. And he did definitively act. 
that in the face of their rebellion, instead of swift demise, they were met with the telling of the good news that this seed of woman might come. And this better Adam, this second Adam, will be everything the first one was not. And to put their hope in that promise that it be fulfilled. And the Old Testament unfolds. And you have the emergence of kings that establish authority and reign and rule on the part of God. You have a a priestly order that arises at God's direct command to actually provide sacrifice and understand that we, we need someone to actually be off in our place so that we're not off. We don't meet that swift demise. And there were prophets all along the way to tell the truth about everything that was taking place and would take place. Ultimately, we read from Isaiah earlier. And in all of that, the point really was to be a pointer to the one who would be the king above every king, the one who would be our great high priest, but also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that he would be the prophetic voice to say, you you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm that truth. It's me. Know me, believe in me, hope in me. Why can he say that? Because the writer of the Hebrews says he's the exact image of God. Right? He doesn't reflect God's image. He bears it exactly because he is God in the flesh. So when he takes on the cross at Golgotha, he dies in our place as someone who took on flesh among us. He dies in our place as the second person of the Trinity who has borne the wrath of God as God that he might emerge from the tomb three days later. Having said, it is finished He now is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He awaits the point of his return when ultimately he will bring about the statement that is glorious to hear. He makes all things new. Once again, the place will be established and his people will be in his place and they will be his people and he will be their God. When Paul says he's the image, I think about all that on some level and I think, well, that's why it's important. Because if, if Jesus isn't beheld, 3.18, then I can't be transformed to look more like Jesus, and I can't live with Jesus forever and ever in that place. And, and that's what I want. That's the purpose, the mission. But if I can't even begin to see him by faith, because I'm not alive to see him by faith, then somebody's got to trust the Lord to make me alive so I can see and hear him and know him so that I can look more like him. That's called missions. Somebody's got to go and do that. Somebody's got to go next door in Jeffersonville, and somebody's got to go to Jakarta. Somebody's got to be there to be the means by which this truth might be known because otherwise their eyes won't see. So that is our goal. But secondly, our ground for missions is that we already see God's glory in Christ. Principle, I'm going to focus on verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, the statement is, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. It's amazing that from Paul's vantage point, this centrality of Jesus, his glory, his honor, this gospel being rooted in the glory of his person, all of that means this. 
that actually what he gives us in verse 5 is the way we ought to go about missions. It really is, and, and ministry, really, if you want to be more general. Right? He, he really gives us the idea of, of method, of content, and manner, like how should we do it. He gives us all of that. Right? How, how are you doing this, Paul? Well, we're proclaiming, but we're not proclaiming ourselves. Now, that might not mean much for you, but when you bear apostolic weight, and that's question, it would be very easy for Paul to say, I could invoke my authority as an apostle. I could say that, and frankly, I can just shut the conversation down, if you'd like. It's a little bit like Brian Regan's bit, right? He would love to be one of the few people that walked on the moon, because he can come into any conversation at a party when a me monster, that's what he calls somebody who only talks about themselves and everything they've done, and they're just chatting away. He could walk into the conversation and go, I walked on the moon. And finally, the guy would just have to be quiet, because you know, that kind of trumps everybody else, right? Paul could pull a, I walked on the moon. I was commissioned directly by Jesus as an apostle. But I'm not proclaiming myself, and honestly, I'm not even answering these accusations, chapter 2 through 7 here, frankly, to satiate some need on your behalf because you may not agree with what I'm doing. We proclaim Jesus as Lord, and what amazes me there is it grounds us in our understanding of declaration of the gospel. What are we preaching? We're not preaching a decision around an incantation. We're not we're not preaching a moral set disassociated with God. We are preaching Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because He's the one who is the King of glory. This is about a relationship. That's not a, an immature way to put it. This really is about God extending Himself, not sparing His Son that we might be His sons and daughters. In the midst of doing that, Paul is saying, what do we do? Our method is to proclaim, declare the gospel. Well, declaring the gospel is Jesus really is Lord. Like, Jesus isn't asking you to entertain a notion about him. Jesus is saying, you are damned apart from me. You are hell bound apart from me. And I have come to rescue you so you could know joy in me. And you could actually look more like me and reign forever with me. Like that, that really is what I've come to do. That's how a Lord, that's how the ultimate authority speaks. No one else speaks that way. Paul says that's who we proclaim. So we do it that way, and that's our content, but what's our manner? How do we go about this? We love and serve people. Right? To hear some people tell it, they, they want to just do the first two, but the delivery system, sovereignly given by the Lord, they, they just want to jettison that. Well, I like to study and preach. So when I hit the mission field, I'm just going to preach. I think that's great. You're going to be back home in two months, all right, just, just so you know. If your plan is to proclaim the good news and not get down and get your fingernails dirty with the people in their plight, dealing with what they deal with, loving and serving them, then it doesn't mimic what Paul's saying here. If that's not what you want to do. It's both and. It really is. That does not mean that principal gifting or certain responsibilities aren't to be seen. They are. They are. But this isn't even discreetly the preaching in formal setting like this. Paul means that. He does that, right? He means the proclamation of the good news as we go as among the people. And all of us as those in Christ are responsible to do that. All of us have been given the joyful privilege to do that. And for him specifically as an apostle in a certain way, 
We work for people to see Jesus by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel really is Jesus as Lord. He has come to rescue you by hope in him. And we do that as we sincerely love our neighbor. And we serve our neighbor. We, we care for them in sincerity and love, not as a project, but because God's given us this gift of this ministry to be among them that they might see again. The last thing I'll say, really in verse 6, is I do think that this notion of glory, God's glory as being chief goal, I think it establishes our, our life and knowledge of God, so it establishes what we do. Here's what I mean by that. If you read verse 6, Paul makes this statement, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's only darkness because there's only blindness, right? There's veiling, there's blindness, I can't see, I can't respond, I can't hear, I can't know God. All of that's true. So because that's true, there's only darkness. And Paul actually returns all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis again to say, you remember when there was only darkness? That's all it was. What did God do? He spoke his word and said, let light shine in darkness. And for you and for me, that is in effect what he has done if you are believing in Jesus today. You were veiled. I was veiled. There, there was only darkness. It doesn't mean we never did anything noble or virtuous, but it was veiled. We were blind. And in that utter darkness that we experienced, whether we were conscious of it or not on some level, living that life day by day, God spoke his word of truth to say, let light shine in that place. But what did that light shine to show us? The glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in his face, beholding him, we might see what joy really was to know him. We actually saw that. And so you and I think about missions and we think about God's glory and people seeing God's glory as this goal. It's also the ground. Because the way he spoke into our lives that we might hear the truth for those who shared it with us. We got to plead with him. God, for my brother, my sister, my neighbor, this people group for which I pray across the globe, God, would you please say, let there be light. Would you please say that in their life? Would you do that? Because for all our strategy and intuition and dedication, if he doesn't say, let there be light, there will only be darkness and veiling and blindness. That's all that will occur. But in his mercy and grace by the gospel, he's given sight to those who are blind. He's given life to those who were dead. He's actually come into that darkness and shown the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people come back from mission and they share pictures with you. I think that's great. I love doing that when I come back. I want to show you rather than a retrospective, a picture, a snapshot of what is to come. I want to show you what this, this glory of the Lord being elevated, Him being exalted looks like when all the tribes and tongues and people and nation have at least one person from among them worshiping Him. This is what it looks like in the end. 
Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Emphasizing missions isn't about what we can't see out there around the world. It's about what the people out there around the world can't see. And they cannot behold the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, except that the Lord send us to proclaim the truth. And then, through that means, he says, let there be light, and light shines in the darkness. Let's pray that God would embolden us to that end as the team comes and we worship together. God, we thank you that we are always sent by you, that you propel us forward, that disciples might be made, that they might see your glory. We thank you that that's true here, it's true wherever you place us. So God, I pray that you would give us openness as to where that might be. I pray that you would give us openness as to how we might order our resources to support that effort. I pray that you would give us openness because our eyes are open. We're not veiled. We're not blind. You have opened our eyes by the light of the gospel to see. God, I pray that we would sing as people who see you. I pray that we would act as people who see you. I pray we'd be a church to be marked by people who see the greatness of your glory and desperately desire for others to see it too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.